Hello and welcome to Lakeside Drive. Today I have such a special guest who I am so stoked to interview. She is someone who has combined her love of sport, of literature and of drama to shape what has already been such an incredible career in sports journalism and broadcasting. Laura Winter joins me to talk about how she grew her career to becoming a trusted voice in Formula One. But it becomes clear from our chat that her passion for sport, for high quality journalism and for women's sport extends far beyond the paddock. This is a super inspirational conversation, especially for those budding journalists out there. Perhaps you are reporting on community netball or local rugby. Laura is evidence that the hard work pays off. So I hope that you enjoy our chat on Lakeside Drive. So I'm joined today by Laura Winter, straight off the plane from Monaco, no less, from the Formula 2 and Formula 3 presentations. Laura, have you slept yet? I have slept briefly, straight back into the freezing cold UK. We've had an absolute snowstorm, so driving home at midnight last night was pretty intense (laughs) through sort of ever-increasingly winter wonderland-esque surroundings but got there got safe and sound um, into bed all good Um, but it has been completely manic you sort of think that the end of the season means you know time off Uh, and I've had sort of people saying oh you have loads of time off now I'm like no not 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 at all and I think you know F1 city season has reignited with the team principals today as well um, recording this in mid-December so yeah it's all all kicking off and, and all still very much go it's all kind of goes into awards and parties and uh, nice end of season celebrations which is great and amazing but still tiring <laughs> so I'm looking forward to proper time off over Christmas. You absolutely deserve some time off it has certainly been a massive year especially in Formula One And F1 is where most of our listeners will know you from, but that's not the half of it when it comes to your involvement with sport, whether it's rugby, rowing, rallycross, it doesn't have to start with R, we just love alliteration here at Lakeside Drive. But the list does extend throughout the alphabet. But where does your love of sport come from? So I've I've loved sport for as long as I can remember. I think I love sport even kind of before I knew what sport was. I was just, I was a swimmer as a kid. I swam competitively for 12 years, um, consistently toiling away in the pool on my own and stinking of chlorine. Um, And sport was always on in the house as well. We had, whether it was the Olympics, the World Cups, rugby and football, tennis, Wimbledon, we always had sport on. F1, that was on a lot in the house as well. It was kind of a backdrop to my life. So it just became so normalised and so... So very much a part of kind of who I am and how we integrated and, and interacted as a family as well. The Olympics played a huge role in that. I, I loved watching the Olympics so, so much. And yeah, from there, I kind of realized um, as I went through school and into university that I wanted to make sport very much a part of my life full term. And that wasn't, it became clear that wasn't going to be a, me being an athlete. I wasn't really good enough at anything, although I tried very hard. Um, and <laughs> I was a bit better at drama, theatre and English writing, uh, you know, oral communication, reading. And so I made those three 
a career basically um but for me sport came from from doing it you know the love of sport came from from doing it and it being part of the way that I interacted with um with people around me with friends with family it kind of became a part of who I am basically and I grew up with it and I can't I cannot imagine life without it absolutely and do you miss competition now or have you just found new ways to kind of channel that competitive spirit <laughs> yeah new it's like beating the sat nav on a journey <laughs> Safely, obviously, I drive very safely, um, but that sat nav's, you know, too cautious. Yeah. <laughs> no, I do. I um, I I still train and I still like try and push myself as hard as I can, whether that's on the bike or in the gym. But I'm also now incredibly aware that I will train hard for a week and then do a, about 20 minutes a day for three weeks when I'm on the road working, and then go back into thinking I'm a full time athlete again for a week, and it's. <laughs> not exactly conducive to good health and, and feeling and, and, you know, remotely decent as a human being. So I've learned to kind of try and just not think that I'm a full-time athlete when I have time off. Um, I now very much, uh, yeah, t- do like nice 50 K rides with a coffee stop. Um, the main part of the ride is the coffee and cake. Yep, all about the um, coffee stop. All, <laughs> yeah. I've learned to just taper myself a little bit and just take it, take it steady. But that's, um, that's hard thing, a hard adjustment to have to make, but I am competitive in a sense, but I'm also perhaps a bit more realistic nowadays. (laughs) Well, it's not for lack of effort. I think we, we can all acknowledge that, um, as opposed to, yeah, everything else that is required when it comes to kind of achieving those elite levels of sport. And that's something I can certainly empathize with. I tend to have a bit of a love-hate relationship with running. So I kind of don't run for six months and then I go, I'm going to run that half marathon. And I just go straight into training and it's like, oh no, you're injured. Who would have thought? (laughs) Yeah. It's like me at at racetracks. I'm like, I haven't run for eight months and I never really have had much of a running career. So I'm going to run the track (laughs) in 30 degrees at the end of a working day when I've not eaten properly. That's, that'll do it. And all I've consumed is caffeine. (laughs) Great. (laughs) And then I wonder why it's horribly hard and I die. My heart rate's about 180 for 20 minutes. Good decisions all around, I'm sure. Um, Of course, being a sports journalist and broadcaster, you know, you didn't just step straight up into the world stage and covering international sporting events. There would have been a significant amount of hard work to get to this point. What were some of your early experiences as a budding journalist once you realised that perhaps being an elite athlete wasn't going to be for you? (laughs) No, sadly not. I fell just short of that hurdle. When, I mean, just short, I mean, a long way. Uh, no. So I, um, my first, my first job was in social media and communications and that was working for the International Rowing Federation. So while yes, that took me out to the international regattas and indeed the Olympics in 2012 in London, which was a dream come true to work at home games, age like 21 or wow. whatever at the time. And I was like, how, how have I just made that possible? It was incredible. But ultimately what I witnessed there was, you know, a lot of the world's media and I worked with them, um, in a sense that I provided information that they then broadcast to the world. And I wanted to be the one broadcasting and it kind of lit a bit of a fire in me. So I moved back to the UK and I got a role, um, here in my home County of Gloucestershire, uh, on the sports desk of my local paper, the Echo and Citizen. And, um, I started working the local patch, like the local sports beat. I was, doing um, grassroots rugby, the the local teams here, sort of National 1, National 2, National 3. Um, and I was 
covering all sorts of sports. And we're lucky to have some brilliant Olympians here as well who um, provided some great, great stories. We had a few of the England rugby girls here when they won the 2014 World Cup. Um, so I, I had a really good, I brought a lot of new sports in to get coverage that typically aren't covered. It was very much male dominated, very traditional patriarchal <laughs> sort of environment. I was the only woman for a long time and it wasn't altogether the most encouraging or welcoming of environments at times, but I kind of used that as fuel a little bit. And, um, loved getting women's sport on the back page or a sport that wasn't considered sport by them, um, into, into the back pages, uh, you know, whether it was rugby, women's rugby or triathlon or modern pentathlon or whatever, I kind of made it a bit of a mission to broaden horizons, I suppose. Um, and from there I knew still that I wanted to be a presenter and to broadcast. And it was about working out how on earth I was going to get there. Um, in 2014, I, got a role through Great Big Events, who are a sports presentation company. They provide all of the music, sound, big screens, um, intros and outros, and all the stadium atmosphere that's created. They create that um, for many different sports. They're a brilliant company and gave me my first chance as a presenter, initially in um, under-16 national netball finals. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which um, I were great. And I was terrified. It's so hilarious <laughs> looking back. Uh, but I was so nervous and wanted to do a really good job. Um, and then I um, went on to do the under 21 world championships. Um, that was exciting. Did a couple of days there and enjoyed that. Again, it was a slightly bigger stage in a sense. And then uh, in 2014, in the summer, I was the Commonwealth Games netball presenter in the stadium. Uh, and that was pretty cool. And that was suddenly was quite a step up. Um, you know, there were 5,000 to 12,000 people there a night or a day watching the sessions and working the final was pretty extraordinary. And yeah, it was kind of, that was a real moment of, Oh my God, this is amazing. And I want to make this my career. And I don't know how I'm going to go about doing that, but I'm determined to. And so I decided to go freelance from there. And when I say freelance, I fundamentally mean I, I, handed in my notice at the paper and it became effectively unemployed <laughs> because like while I had a few jobs here and there effectively I actually was unemployed I'm going to be really brutally honest so in January I earned 40 pounds good 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 <laughs> my first Strong month freelance was okay but the January oh the January month I earned 40 pounds um which I actually spent on petrol getting to and from the football match I was covering. So that was great. Uh, (laughs) And then um, I got involved in cycling. I was a keen cyclist at the time and um, loved watching cycling as well. And kind of, it was a a natural step and a natural fit. I got involved in a women's cycling new YouTube channel and social media community. um, And we went about kind of giving the women's peloton the recognition and coverage that had been so greatly lacking at that point, the men's scene was thriving, but the women's scene was, was just not, nothing was broadcast. Nothing was televised. We knew nothing about these riders. And so we, we, a team of our, a team of me and and some other amazing women and men, we, we went out and, and kind of made that possible. And I worked with them until 2020 and it was an amazing journey with them. and, And that gave me some of my great first experiences in presenting. And I learned a huge amount there, um, on, and I think it's important to learn, to learn a lot in these jobs, which provide a springboard because you can kind of make your mistakes and learn and redo, uh, in a more, you know, in a, in a 
kind of safer, more comfortable environment than when you're thrust into the limelight on the grid at F1 and you're kind of, you can't make many mistakes there. You've Mm. got to be so on it. So I definitely made my mistakes along the way, but I'm very grateful for like each experience I had up to that point because it's, it's shaped me into who I am today. And, you know, making those mistakes, uh, in the earlier part of your career is, is inevitable, but it's how you learn from them. Um, I got involved in motorsport in 2019. I did four rounds of rally cross, signed the contract. Like, yes, rally cross. <laughs> cool. Googled. <laughs> I just, I just know whole new world to me that I just didn't understand, but, but I never, ever want to be that presenter who comes into a sport and just pays lip service and, stands there and looks a certain way and and just sort of like blandly and um you know talks about the sport and not knows doesn't know anything about it and and obviously hasn't taken the time Mm. to really research the sport and to understand the athletes or the drivers or players or whoever whoever it is you're covering I think you do a huge disrespect to a sport if you don't give it the the full, the full oomph and give it the kind of the coverage it, it really deserves. So, um, I did a lot of research going in and the commentator, Andrew Coley on that one, he, he was incredible and he put, took me under his wing and, and showed me the ropes and sort of said, okay, say this, say this, say this, this is what it all means. And I said it all going, I don't really understand what I'm saying, but I'm <laughs> sure it makes sense to motorsport enthusiasts. You know, the track's green, but it's evolving and, you know, and then, and now of course I understand what that, what that all means, but, um, it was a slight case of fake it till you make it. But by kind of round two, three, I was in the swing of it and absolutely loving it. And from there, I was recommended to Formula One. And then I guess the rest is sort of sort of history, except for the little bit of COVID in between, which derailed a few plans. But we were back on course now. Wow. There's so much there to to dive into in terms of your experience. Gosh, so many kind of things coming out around having a mentor and the importance of that and learning from all of those experiences along the way, which we'll get into a bit later for sure. I wanted to touch on something you just mentioned in terms of, I suppose, having a bit of a mission of yours to really try and put women's sport under a, a spotlight or creating a spotlight for it, more to the point. I think, um, you know, we, we talk about, I suppose, different, um, you know, female presenters, but also, you know, whether it's journalists and the athletes, of course, themselves and how much they are carving a path for, you know, these young girls who either want to be athletes or involved in sport in, in so many ways, because just sport as a whole has always been such a, um, you know, traditionally male area. And you're one of those people, like it or not, Laura, who is, is doing that in terms of, of <laughs> creating that space. No, and I really mean that creating that space in terms of, you know, um, not just having a seat at the table, but that actually, you know, actually being part of how a sport and, and sporting world kind of evolves. Um, many of the events that you do cover are also, <laughs> you've, you've picked yourself a very hard kind of list in particular, you know, rugby, snooker, motorsport, rallycross, you know, sport in general has always been yeah. traditionally male area and you've chosen some of the the most probably, um, you know, <laughs> tricky ones in, the, in that regard. What what has your experience mm. been in that way and what advice would you have for other women but young girls who are looking to enter the sporting world? And it doesn't have to be kind of journalism or broadcasting specifically, um, but wanting to enter the arena, what would your advice be and what's been some of your experience? 
Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Um, I think for me growing up as a swimmer, gender was never a barrier. I was never aware of my gender. I was never aware that, and that's obviously, you know, a very privileged thing to say, but I was never aware that being a woman meant or a girl meant I couldn't do sport or shouldn't do sport or it wasn't a place for me or people would think it was strange or weird. And it wasn't until I got to kind of 18, 19 and I looked at more broader media coverage and didn't see any women and didn't see any of the sports that I at that time loved that, you know, the sort of Olympic sports like swimming and rowing and um, these sports didn't get coverage. And I just felt that women didn't, I mean, I think women's sport coverage amounted to about 3% in 2012. It's now 17%. So it's grown and the Women's Sport Trust um, provided those stats and I've done a huge amount to grow that coverage as well here in the UK. But Obviously, there's still a way to go, but it is massively, massively improving. Um, I think in terms of being a woman in a male-dominated space, again, I don't go into a male-dominated space or and, and think, oh, I'm a woman and there's only men here. It, it sort of strikes you every now and then, but I, I kind of... I feel very comfortable in that arena. As in, I don't think about I'm a woman and they're a man. It's like we're all just colleagues here doing the same thing. That isn't to say that I haven't experienced, of course you know, sexism along the way, misogyny along the way. Absolutely. Whether it's in social media commentary, YouTube comments, of course, um, that's part of being somebody who works in sport. And, you know, it's certainly a sport like Formula One, which has such a huge following as well. You are inevitably in a million fans going to have the odd one or two who, you know, should crawl back to their caves. (laughs) But, um, um, it, you know, it, it's never stopped me. If anything, I kind of use it as fuel to my fire and use it as motivation and, and do it kind of in spite mm. of them and what they what they think a woman's place should be within sport or for them, certainly not within sport. Uh, there are also like microaggressions that you, you can't put your finger on, but you know you can sense in certain arenas and environments. Um, oh, there's the token woman or... Um, you know, you have to look a certain way or um, we'll use you in this context because that's kind of the friendlier, fluffier, more comfortable space for a woman to be in. Mm. And I've certainly noticed that when, if I lead a weekend in F1, I'll get far, far more kind of attention and perhaps in a negative way than if I was to be a sort of foil to Will Buxton, for example, because I think um, people can take a woman being on the side, but when a woman leads, it's slightly more confrontational for for people who feel threatened or emasculated by that. But I just don't let it, I don't let it stop me. As I say, I use it genuinely as, as another level of motivation. You know, I love what I do. Um, it's taken me a while to get to this point, but I know that the people who really matter, if they think I'm doing a good job, that's all I need to know. My friends, my family, my immediate bosses, uh, and the wider company as a whole. If they think I'm doing well and if they're happy, then then that's that's all there is to think about. Um, yes, you want to make sure that fans obviously respond positively to you, uh, but you can't please everyone. And so it's about doing the best job you can, being the best prepared and, and kind of not thinking of gender as this constant, your gender as this constant um, factor in, in how you're and how you broadcast because it's not, and it shouldn't be. We're all just people here to talk about sport. 
I think that's the thing. Sometimes we forget about what we have in common. Um, and like you said, it's very easy to focus on those things that kind of set us apart. And the fact that there's always going to be these outliers, people who you can't either please or just never relate to. Um, but at the same time, all never relate to you perhaps, but you all have this, this common thing, which is, which is sport. And in this context, Formula One, which at the end of the day, like you said, we're all just here wanting to talk about it um, and, and gas bag about what's going on on track and off track. And, and there's so much that, that does unite us. I think the tricky thing now is that, um, people who have perhaps always been there in terms of supporters who might not be as positively spoken or supportive in this way now just have a much bigger platform to which to kind of, you know, yell those voices. Um, but it sounds like the, the advice might be just to keep your head down and let your work do the talking um, by the sounds of things um, for, for people who might be might be looking to enter this space. Just on, on that note as well, in terms of, I suppose, the role of, of social media, things have changed so much. I imagine even since you started um, working in kind of journalism space and, and sports and broadcasting space, people are turning to YouTube, to social media, to streaming platforms to get updates and information. Has your approach changed when it comes to covering events or providing updates or information or reporting on, on sports in, in the context of that environment? And, and how have you responded to that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, actually. I think definitely so. When you suddenly, your following increases, you're aware that more and more people are looking at what you're doing. And um, I've always been careful. I've always been careful on social media. Not, not even careful. I mean, I've, I've not had to be careful. But I, I, I hope to think, I would like to think I'm a decent human being who wouldn't be sexist or racist or anything on, um, on social media um, or otherwise. But um, yeah, I think you're just, you're acutely aware that people are going to be reacting to what you post. And so you kind of sanitize it in a way. Um, I also think it's really important to be, to be vulnerable and authentic on, on social media, certainly on Instagram, that's the kind of platform for that. So I also enable, allow myself to do that and, and create that space as well, while also protecting me and mm. my privacy and, and who I am. And mm. that's been a balance this year that I've had to, as my following has grown a bit, um, and we're not talking, you know, much, but <laughs> it, it, it's still, it, it grows and it is a little overwhelming when you sort of, um, are suddenly aware that a lot of people are uh, looking at your profile and, and perhaps talking about it and talking about you and what they perceive they know of you. And I think mm. that's, that's the thing is that people think they know you because they see you on social media. And of course they know a part of me and they know uh, the side that I, I wish to portray on social media, but they don't necessarily know you as a person um, that, you know, the Laura with my family or my friends or my loved ones. So it's, it's just about getting that balance right of like protecting yourself and not not being too exposed and giving too much of yourself away if you don't want to, but also being vulnerable and authentic and real and having fun as well because I think so much of social media now is like an actual bin fire. Yeah. So great reference <laughs> it's about to the bin, by the way. I mean, I, <laughs> we love that here. <laughs> I I don't. I do not um, tweet any opinions anymore because mm. there's no point. Um, you will piss someone off if you say the sky is blue. You will genuinely, someone will be furious with you. So there's just little point in tweeting in tweeting much uh, much opinion nowadays. I can't be bothered with the 
the sort of I just don't want to fight with strangers on on the internet. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I haven't got. Is that not time, how actually? you like to spend your downtime, Laura? No. I thought that would just no, be really fun. So, <laughs> oh, as soon as I start getting like abused for something on social media, I get so anxious. It's just hmm. I just haven't got the t- and I, I've learned to kind of deal with that in a way, but I haven't got the time or all the emotional, mental, physical, physical capacity. Like, where do these people get the time? Genuinely, yeah. I have no time to do that. Yeah. I'd rather call somebody and have a chat with a friend than sit online and abuse strangers. It's so, it's so strange. And I, I try and really steer clear of that. So I guess, yeah. And, you know, social media is an incredible thing. And I've made an amazing connections through social media and have had got jobs through social media and, and all of that. But it's also can be an absolute shit tip. <laughs> Um, so just yeah, navigating it completely like, agree. <laughs> yeah. And, and keeping kind of yourself, keeping true to your, staying true to yourself, uh, and putting yourself first when you, when you present yourself is, is important as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, there's so many better ways to, to spend your time and productively and, and positively as well. It's, it's amazing, like you said, to to see the time people have on their hands. And also, like you said, the the emotional exhaustion that that actually brings. You know, I, I remember sitting, I've been on a train actually, I was, I was over in the UK and I saw the, a bit of a kind of kerfuffle in front of me and this quite angry outburst of somebody. And you never try to judge about in terms of knowing what's going on with somebody that day, but it was so evident the amount of anger that was just on tap, ready to go um, at this complete stranger. And I thought, oh, goodness me, like what a what a weight to carry to have that type of of, of emotion yeah, kind of at your fingertips, um, which is it's just really interesting. So like you said, yeah. if you're aware of that and also how it makes you feel, you kind of go, if engaging in a certain way isn't aiding positively to to your experience, then that's a pretty easy one to to kind of cross off the list as to how you're going to spend your, your time, um, yeah. which, you know, energy resource, energy management <laughs> is, is what all of that comes yeah. down to. Totally. Totally. So you mentioned that Andrew Coley, who we also will give a shout out here when it comes to a commentator who we love, especially over at Extreme E, but then also a lot of other off-road racing as well as somebody who had been um, particularly influential for you in, in your career and somebody who, you know, perhaps was that, that guiding voice in, in certain moments in time. Were there, was there anyone else who you either, um, I suppose, looked up to or who inspired you throughout your career? So Anthony McCrossan is a cycling commentator and he gave me my first chance with the women's cycling YouTube channel um, and TV show and social media hub that I spoke about earlier, Vox Women. Um, and so he very much uh, gave me some uh, advice so early on in my career when I was still a complete baby and a noob and thought I was a presenter <laughs> and I, you know, I wasn't being myself on camera and he encouraged that side of me to come out and, um, yeah, he definitely, he helped enormously at the start of my career, um, for the first sort of five years or so. Um, again, Andrew Coley, just, yeah, I wouldn't be where I am without him. He knows that we have like emotional chats every now and then. And I'm like, I love you so much, mate. I wouldn't be where I am, you know, all of that. And he's like, oh, I'm crying now. I'm like, I'm crying too. We're pathetic. Um, we also have to shout out Will Buxton as well, because, I remember in when I first went into Formula One, right? You're you're so kind of intent on doing a good job and and nervous about getting things right or wrong and making sure people like you and you know you're aware that it's the grandest stage of all and it's just this most extraordinary world and you don't want to lose it because it's so brilliant and so you're trying to do a really good job and he could see that you know 
that I was doing a good job, but that I was doing it in a way which wasn't perhaps true to me. And there was a weekend warm up he and I filmed in the Turkish Grand Prix in 2020 and 2021, 2021, 2021. And he, um, he was, he just brought out this side to me, like me and him, we bounce off each other so much on air. Uh, I think people think we're together. We're not together. He's got a wife, but we, he's like <laughs> a TV husband. He, he and, yeah. The comments after that weekend warm up were <laughs> interesting. Oh, um, but no, we just bounce off each other so much. We, there's such a chemistry between us on air as, as co-hosts. Um, we love working together so much. To clarify. <laughs> yeah. For the record. Um, and <laughs> that weekend warm up, he, he said to me, you were so yourself then. That was really good. And I was like, no, that I'm not my God. I was being so silly. People are going to think this and X, Y, Z of me. And people, you know, because I'm a woman, they'll perhaps think I'm not serious enough and I'm frivolous and whatever. Second guessing yourself and overthinking, which is a chronic habit of mine that I need to stop. But actually the, the overwhelming reaction was very positive. And Will was like, you, you need to be yourself on camera because like, you know, more you, more you than you're, than you're willing to give, um, and allow that silly side to come out. And, and he brings that out to me. And I know other people as well. Lawrence Bretto has said similarly to Will that he brings out this side to him. That's just so much fun. Um, and I think, yeah, like that's, Will's definitely helped me enormously when I've got really stupid questions that, you know, as somebody who's relatively still new to formula one, I, I obviously will have, he is like, he helps me. And, you know, I was like, Will, Will, I'm having a mental block or Will, I don't know this. Sorry. It's such a stupid question. He just tells me there's no judgment. There's no agenda. There's no, there's no like, Oh my God, I can't believe she didn't know that. I really don't think she should be working in formula one. Mm. It's just straight up. He's such a good mate. Um, so yeah, I've got to shout out Will as well. He's, he's been amazing. That's fantastic to hear. And it's interesting that you mentioned Lawrence Bredo. He's he's certainly somebody who, um, yeah, from from my perspective watching, I was like, I feel like I've watched him come out of his shell and we're getting much more of 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 him as 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 viewers and and it's it it has certainly evolved. Um, you know, we talk about Weekend Warm Up in particular so much yeah. um as everyone kind of finds their their groove and like you said, that that chemistry on camera is it's absolutely apparent. Um and I'm sure it results in rumors arrive everywhere <laughs> but it is it may, honestly but it does um it really does evolve the the spectator's experience because one of the big things about formula one in comparison to other sports is that the vast majority of formula one fans out there will never attend a race mm. um so it's a really important component of a weekend to help those who are watching kind of feel like they're yeah. there and they're, they're part of it and that type of thing, which I think is a bit of a unique part about this sport um, and the role that that hosts and and reporters and that type of thing actually play for those kind of watching along from from home. But let's talk about Formula One in particular. So we talked a bit about your background. Let's let's get stuck into to F1. It is an F1 podcast after all, yeah. so we should probably talk about Formula One a bit more specifically. So you came into F1, you've done rallycross, um, cycling, everything we've just been talking about. What were your first impressions for the first time reporting from the paddock? Oh, I was terrified. <laughs> I was terrified. Um, I was standing there, I remember like memorising the name, the sponsor, the full name of the, I can't even remember it now, the full name of the Grand Prix. So um, <laughs> I can't, it was like, I can't remember it. 
Um, it was the Belgian Grand Prix in 2019 anyway. Um, and I was doing track TV. So the, the screens on site, but also kind of had the opportunity to do bits on stage as well. Um, and then equally I was down to do the driver's parade and any interviews on the grid as you know, too. So I was like, this is, this is crazy. This is insane. And the weekend then took as, as many F1 fans will know, a very tragic turn as Antoine Hubert was killed in a crash in F2. And I was reporting in the pit lane for F2 at the time. Uh, again, that was, you know, thrown in at the deep end there. But then obviously it just became um, the worst weekend. But but equally, you saw the best and worst of, of the sport altogether. And the way that the motorsport world came together in, in on that Sunday for the Grand Prix was incredible. And... It, it felt immediately a huge privilege to be involved, um, whether that was through the absolute tragedy of it, being there and witnessing that, um, the way that everyone came together, the collective grief was was really powerful. And working in the paddock itself before that sprint race also was a huge privilege. I just, I was so aware that that I felt kind of like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing here or how I've managed to get in, but I definitely at that, I knew, I knew that I'm not going to get out. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. I'm here to stay. Uh, I loved it. I just absolutely loved it. And then so many people you speak to say it about formula one, that it's like a gateway drug. Like you do one race and then that's it. The addiction is there. And it's the same watching, I think, or watching drive to survive. And then it's a gateway and then you're in and you're hooked and there's no getting out. Uh, and then, yeah, two, three years later, 2021 was my my first main season. I, I worked 2020 mostly doing virtual interviews from home, but 21 was my first season. And I mean, how lucky, like one an unbelievable season that was to, to witness that level of sporting rivalry and drama and controversy was just unbelievable. Such a privilege and such a such a kind of like, where were you moment, you know, Abu Dhabi was just felt like we were the epicenter of the world, not just the sporting world, but the world. And then 2022, obviously a new era for Formula One, again, a privilege to be there and part of it and, and to play a much bigger role in F1 TV as well. So, um, yeah, as I've kind of moved through each season and and got more and more involved, it's, um, it's just been incredible. And that feeling for me, I'm kind of like 26, 28 races in now. Yeah which is ridiculous really for me. To, I don't know how I've managed that. Um, but, to, but to be, to, you know, it's, I still get the same feeling walking into the paddock and walking onto the grid. I still get the same. I, this is unbelievable. And the grid, the grid is like, like bottle that and sell it. Like that <laughs> grid atmosphere. You make your billions. It's just magic. There's nothing like it. There's not. There's nothing like it, and that's. I mean, that's a problem because it's it's addictive. <laughs> but it is. It's just epic. I. I'm. I just. Yeah. I love it. I was going to ask you if it was something that you warmed to immediately and you wanted to keep doing. So that's that question answered then yeah. quite clearly in terms of absolutely yeah. hooked from Very the much. first second. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Talk to me. I know we're we're all a little bit sick about talking about. COVID, but I think it's quite interesting to talk about in terms of the context in in your experience because you're kind of new into this sport and then the sport had to kind of confront this whole new situation, which it didn't even know how it was going to to handle. What was that 
adjustment and transition like from from your perspective like you said you're sitting at home doing interviews and that type of thing um did it get in do you feel like it got in the way of your career did it help to propel you forward because we're more open to doing virtual interviews um and things became a bit more non-traditional what was your experience from that perspective so 2020, I kind of viewed as like a big breakthrough year for me. I got a list of races I was going to do in October the year before, and I had kind of like 10, 12 races. And I thought, oh my God, I've I've really like broken in and, and made it. And I was really excited. And then obviously everything that happened with COVID, that was just ripped up and thrown out the window. So I mean, for the first part of COVID, it was, I had three weeks where I was just absolutely terrified. They, you know, they hadn't announced any kind of government support for freelancers. Um, I had no work. I think one afternoon, my entire year of work disappeared. Um, I was sitting in a flat that I was renting at the time and I had no idea how I was going to earn money to rent. Um, and then equally you have those kind of concerns yourself, but I also was suddenly, you know, you're acutely aware people are dying and increasingly so each and every day. And it's a virus that you don't, we don't understand and there's no cure or vaccine for at the time. And you're worried about your elderly family and your, your own mom. And, you know, you, you begin to kind of like put it in perspective. Yes. It all just felt so desperate and so wildly out of control. And then obviously I was, I realized that I wasn't able to really head back on site that year. And that was really difficult because, I had this whole year planned in my head where I was like, I've done it. I've, you know, I don't need to worry anymore. I don't need to hustle for work. And um, it didn't happen. Suddenly like the hustle got even harder and even more real. Um, but I was very grateful to F1 that they they said, look, we want you to work from home. We want you to do these kind of like fan driver interaction interviews. And looking back, actually what that gave me was when I did get to a race, it was Germany 2020, I um, Will had COVID, so I was covering him, which again was like deep end, get straight in. Like, oh God, what? Yeah. Uh, jump in. <laughs> what, am yeah, what am I doing? Um, I uh, The drivers knew who I was because I'd spent the year speaking to them weekend in, weekend out. And actually they then like, they knew who I was uh, and you, you're not coming in cold. Um, so actually um, the, the calls continued into 2021 as well. And so again, each and every race weekend, I'm speaking to the drivers. And so they become much more used to you and and they know that they can trust you in in some respect as well. So I think it was hugely beneficial in that sense. And obviously 21 and 22 have been um, amazing, unbelievable years since. I don't know what, what, you know, there's a parallel universe somewhere where 2020 was that year for me. Um, But we'll never know. We'll never know. Um, And I guess I... I like milked 2020 and all the challenges for what they were worth. And I tried to find my own route through. And what it did do actually was, was encourage me to create more content myself, to be more autonomous, to look elsewhere for work, to podcast. I mean, as we all did, we sort of pivoted and adapted to this new world that was upon us. So in a sense, yeah, I guess like I learned a lot from that. Uh, I would never want to live through anything like that again, though. I think many, I think any, everybody out there would feel the same, that lockdown, living on your own was unbelievably hard and um, losing all your work in one afternoon 
would not recommend either. <laughs> no. And you kind of, yeah, like you said, looking back now in this kind of, you know, with this vantage point and, and with all of the you know, good experiences that you've had since then, you can try and extract the, the silver linings and the things that were positive and acknowledge the resilience that you had through that as well. But it doesn't mean that you want to do it again, for sure. Um, really interesting to hear though, how that did kind of shift your career a little bit. Like you said, you kind of then started to be able to build those relationships with with drivers in a different way than perhaps what you'd expected, but then perhaps put you on a different footing going into it. I think that's really interesting though, because talk about trust and trust in, in Formula One. Um, you've, you know, you have become a trusted voice in the sport, um, in, in the paddock with drivers, with fans. Is that something going into it that you deliberately worked to build or do you feel like that was just a kind of a product of how you went about things or the the circumstances by which that ended up happening? Um, was Or was that a deliberate goal for you? Probably a combination, I think, of those things that, you know, I've got a journalism qualification in, in, in sports journalism, so I know how important it is to be a trusted voice and to report fairly and to report authentically and, and to have um, credence and to kind of, you know, have respect for what you're, for the people you're speaking to, to cover things comprehensively and fairly and to get to the, really get to the the heart of it. Um, a byproduct of that is, I mean, that's lovely for you to say, I can't say it myself, but I'm now a trusted voice in the paddock, but that's lovely that that's how people, I can't, I'm, I can't. I'm I can too, say it. I it's all right. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all imposter syndrome. I, I I'll happily can't. say it for you. <laughs> that's very kind. Thank you. Um, and it's lovely to hear that because it does, you know, when you do get that kind of recognition and feedback, you, you are aware that you're on the right path and, and doing a good job. So, um, yeah, hopefully that continues. That's the thing is you can't be complacent and rest on your laurels in that sense that you've got to continue to do so. Um, and I'm still learning all the time. F1 is a wildly complex sport that's ever changing and evolving as well. So I'm still learning with it. I learn every day and every time I'm at a race and that's great. But I think, yeah, my approach was always learn as much as you can, prepare as hard as you can and really make the most of it. So I guess maybe that's a byproduct of it. But again, I can't admit to being a <laughs> voice because it feels too icky. To that's right. Like I said, I'll, I'll happily, <laughs> say that I'll say it on, on your behalf and I can blow smoke for you. It's fine. <laughs> you don't have to do it yourself. You. <laughs> um, let's talk about race weekends. Um, you know, we know it's just not just a matter of showing up on a Friday and you jump straight into to weekend warm-up. But it would be great for our listeners to understand something we're doing with um, a lot of the different the roles and profiles that we talk about um, on this podcast in particular to try and, I suppose, open up um, Ren's understanding as to so much of that work that goes in. You know, it's not just about, mm. you know, lights out and away we go. But what does a race weekend look like for you? So we arrive on Tuesday or Wednesday, depending how far away the, the race is. Um, and I've done a lot of my prep before. So kind of looking at where things are standing, heading into that weekend, what's at stake, permutations, where the key battles are, look at the history of the track. Um, I'll prep any questions for interviews that I may have on the, the Thursday or Friday. Um, see the team, meet, you know, have dinner, drinks with the team. That's one of the most important parts of the weekend is, is how much I love the people I work with. They're just like genuine family. We're a traveling dysfunctional family and it's, it's so great. I just love it. <laughs> um, and yeah, then the kind of weekend just, just gets going and Thursday, yes, you'll have weekend warm up. Um, that'll be in the 
in the afternoon. You'll also have the driver um, press conferences and media pens. So you'll kind of start to get driver thoughts ahead of the weekend. So I tend to look, keep across that and kind of make notes on any key aspects or key stories that we'll reflect later in weekend warm up. Um, and uh, just just keep prepping, like looking at the news all the time, keeping across social media, saying hello to everybody, having coffee, schmoozing about the paddock <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and then on the Friday, yeah, then it's, then it's obviously practice. So you kind of, your, your day is shaped around, around practice. And depending on what, what my role is for a race weekend, that kind of differs. It could be, I'm doing some driver interviews on stage or, uh, I've, as I've done a couple of season, a couple of races, sorry. Um, reporting in the pit lane, which is terrifying. Um, in the sense that, you know, I've only done it a few times and I'm still, the pit lane is scary, but, um, I do love it. It's fun. And, um, you know, so I'll be in the pit lane for practice or kind of speaking to the drivers before or after we have post FP2 interviews where we find out, you know, how their Friday has been and, and what the story is of the car and, and the feel of the track and their pace for that weekend. And that's Friday. Saturday, then um, we have F1 TV shows. So we will have the pre and post quali show um, and of course qualifying itself. So we have free practice three first. um, That's kind of calm before the storm. And then you're you're just getting ready really to go for for qualifying. Uh, When I do track TV as well, I'll have some hits in the paddock where I'm sort of explaining what's going on or what's happening or giving them gossip or headlines or whatever else, um, stage interviews too, that kind of thing. Then F1 TV, we have pre-quality shows, half an hour build up into qualifying, qualifying itself where I'll sit and watch in our offices. It's so funny when you're at the track, you never actually watch. I never watch on track action. Yeah. I watch everything. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really, it's really strange. Um, and then post quality show is that's much more of a reactive show. So there's like zero prep. You basically have the qualifying order and anything dramatic that happened. And then you just, you go, um, and you just let loose in the paddock. So that's fun. Um, they're the first two big shows for F1 TV and then you head into race day itself. Um, and we can have some, uh, we have some like Instagram lives around quality and race as well. Um, first thing on Sunday normally is we have a tech rehearsal, as I said earlier on with Will, um, uh, our rehearsals are pretty hilarious as you can imagine <laughs> and because it's all so reactive with with like the grid and and um you know the pit lane and things that changing and there's breaking news right up until lights out and away we go we we prepare as much as we can I have a running order and I, I like I have all my notes and people have seen how meticulously I write notes like an absolute nerd but um we don't tend to like rehearse the pre-race show in a sense. We sort of um, like do a tech check and make sure everyone can hear everyone. And then we're like, cool, have a good show guys. Bye. <laughs> and it's like, okay, here we go. Here we go. Yeah. Um, you know, we do rehearsal, but, and run throughs in, in my own head of what I'm going to say when, but actually when I'm talking to the guys, they're so good that surprising them with a question is far better than rehearsing it and over rehearsing it and running through it. So that's, that's fun. That's always a lot of fun. Driver's Parade is first up. Then we have, um, so sometimes I'll do Driver's Parade, then run to pre-race show and kind of have half an hour there to switch brain and get ready. And then the race, um, you throw to the race from the grid and it's like, as I said earlier, the most exhilarating thing. It's just like a natural drug. And then, um, the race itself and then post-race, whether I'm lead on that or 
more often will is, and I'll be roaming around getting interview reaction. What happens after that? So you kind of, we talk about the pack down and how crazy the pack down is. So you must be out there trying to get driver interviews and reactions and everything else. And there's just things just being dissembled all around you. It must be chaos. (laughs) The paddock is literally ripped down around your ears. It's, It's like completely mad. You'll have, it will literally be sort of taken down as you're coming off air. Um, and I go back into the broadcast center and my bag is just in the middle of a room that's been completely stripped down of like all its structure, the desks and everything. It's amazing how quickly they derig. It's crazy. Um, and then, yeah. And then, um, everyone has a few drinks, I suppose we should say, (laughs) um, you know, there's always a good after party somewhere. Um, which is, which is great. It lets everyone just kind of let their hair down and let off some steam after, you know, what has been like a hectic race weekend. So it's always a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm sure you need to have that, that release after, you know, an adrenaline kind of rush for basically three days. You know, those things are meant to to be kind of temporary, temporary spikes. (laughs) We're not meant to be sustained at that level of activity for, for so long. Mm. But yeah, we were, we were talking about, um, uh, I was listening to some some interviews with I think it was with um, Lucy Lucy Taylor who's Castrol slash Alpine um, in terms of um, their fuel scientist science work there and she kind of talks about this meticulous building of either a mobile or um, kind of yeah truck based. Um, set up in terms of testing all of their fuel and everything else. Everything goes on with it. And she talks about the meticulous testing and everything else and the build up over four days. And then she goes, and then we'll pack it all up in six hours. <laughs> and this thing that you've taken days and days to create and build just disappears. Yeah. It's like it never happened. And you go on to the next. It's crazy. It's kind of like life or death on the grid. Like we must get this show right. And then it's done and there's another one next week. It's just, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's life on the road, isn't it? And it's life in sport and in TV and in Formula One. It's just, it's epic. It's, it's so great. Sounds amazing. And you were talking about the delights of, of live TV earlier and, you know, it's very reactions based and everything else. And we, we've seen some amazing scenes because of the beauty of live television in particular, but whether that's weights sewn into dresses or, you know, there's drivers either refusing questions or whatever it might be, but you also get the wonderful elation, right? And all the positivity that comes from those things too. Thinking about, I suppose, yeah, that, that reporting side of things, and this might be another sport as well, but have you ever, I don't know, I suppose asked a question a certain way or said something that you've gone, oh gosh, I I wish I hadn't asked that question or I wish I'd done that differently. Or is it just really kind of look ahead, it's out there now, can't do anything about it? Oh, no, I I beat myself up. (laughs) I lie awake at night and think, oh, my God, I can't believe I asked that. Or was that too flippant? Or Mm. should I have been more sensitive there? Or should I have been harder there? Or did I not? Was that too fluffy? I am a chronic overthinker. Um, and I think, you know, people may look from the outside and, and see somebody who kind of is presenting in Formula One and therefore has all of her shit together. And I'm here to tell you, I do not. <laughs> um, I'm a huge overthinker. I massively, massively, you know, worry about kind of the questions I've asked or whether, you know, I, yeah, massively. And that's a habit I need, I need to work on myself, but equally, I think it also keeps me on my toes to an extent and make sure that I'm not complacent and I care. And it, it does show how much I care as well about the work I do, the quality of the work I do 
and and what's important to me as well the relationships that you're fostering within the paddock and and whatever else I mean I've never I've not done anything you know I've never dropped a clanger or um well I probably have but nothing that <laughs> springs to mind but I'm <laughs> probably well was definitely have done something very stupid but nothing I would never you know nothing deliberately so nothing deliberately kind of you have to ask the tough the tough questions right but you just do them with respect and that's kind of the way I, my outlook on it. Yeah. And it's interesting. I suppose, you know, they know that you've got a job to do as well, right? Like whether it's the team principals or, or drivers or anybody else who's, who's involved in, in teams mm. and pulling them together over a weekend, they know that, you know, that you've got a job too as well. And it's all about, it's all about that respect yeah. for sure. So we've got some questions that have been written in from our listeners, kind of two questions here we'll ask together. One is what is your first ever Grand Prix memory. So you did mention that you kind of, you know, Formula One was on the TV at home. Um, and the kind of the second question that goes with this is what was your relationship with Formula One prior to being involved with it professionally? So I think let's just tie that into, yeah, what was, what was your first memory of, of Formula One? No, I, I don't, I don't, honestly, um, and it may be offensive to people to hear this, but I don't have a memory beyond before working in it. I didn't, it was on in the house, but I didn't pay too much attention. Um, I was obsessed with swimming uh, and I didn't, I've not grown up an F1 fanatic. Like I'll fully put my hands up to that. Um, in, and in that sense, I'm not coming in as a fan. I'm, I am coming in. I, I obviously love the sport now. I love working in the sport, but I, I, I'm not a fan in, I haven't come in as a fan in that sense, which I think helps with objectivity as well and keeping like level-headed and neutral around things, which is important, but it doesn't deter from my love of it now. Uh, I wish I had been a fan. I wish I'd been involved in the sport for longer and, and loved the sport when I was older, y- younger, but I, but I didn't, you know, I just, it, it just didn't fall that way. My earliest memory of a Grand Prix was my brother pushing toy cars around the house. <laughs> we, he had his own Grand Prix yeah. and it was like, it kind of like a cross years though. I'm not sure if we'd ever had this. So it was like, cool star, Damon Hill, Michael Schumacher. So I think we had kind of, you know, a bit of a cross era thing going on but um that was my first memory of F1 uh and then I guess 2016 I dipped in because of the like the Lewis and Nico rivalry Mm. was so extreme but kind of watched a documentary there and really enjoyed it and thought god F1's amazing and then um yeah it wasn't until 2019 and I guess my first memory is yeah the Belgium 2019 Grand Prix which has you know both brilliant and you know as I said the best and the worst of the sport. All right. Here's someone who's, who's looking to the future of F1 who would like to ask, what are your thoughts on the expanding calendar and the growth in the US, which we've really seen this year? I think the growth in the US is brilliant. And I think any sport that isn't wanting to grow in the US with like the extraordinary market um, there, you know, is, is, is foolish. I think that is a huge growth market. I think equally, we can't just look to new fans and forget the faithful and and the the heritage and the authentic and the traditional fans, they are still very much at the core of the sport. And so you've got to find an approach that balances both attracting new fans, looking after them, explaining the sport to them and attracting and and keeping casual fans involved because they will be, they're your future. They will become your engaged fans, but you also have to hold on to respect the traditional fans who've been there since day dot so it's a, it's like a difficult balance to strike, I think. Um, but I, I hope one that F1 is is beginning to 
to hit right. I think, you know, Vegas next year, you know, like it or not, it's, it's going to be one of the biggest spectacles in sport mm. ever. Mm-hmm. It is. We're going to shut down Vegas. We're going to race cars through the strip. It's going to be amazing. Like it is going to be absolutely ridiculous. Like, come on, it's just extraordinary. Mm. Uh, and and yeah, that's an amazing thing. That kind of ostentatious, audacious nature of we're going to put an F1 race. And when I first heard the rumors of it, I was like, no way. And I was like, a race in Vegas is it's going to just be ridiculous. <laughs> um, I just hope equally that the racing then lives up to it you know like Miami this year was wasn't the like mm. most classic of races I hope that the racing lives up to to the hype around it yeah for sure the expanding calendar um look I think yeah we again it's great that F1 is continuing to go to new parts of the world um that more racetracks are interested in hosting Formula One events um but you obviously again have to balance that alongside ensuring that staff are okay and people's well-being is okay mm-hmm. and um and that and that you know that it doesn't get to a point where it's too much i think um 22 23 races is is a decent amount uh yeah we'll see we'll see what happens <laughs> in the future but the, and the expanding calendar in sense in geographically you know whether we see a south africa soon more races in the US, I think is, is a really good thing. Yes. It's interesting. Like I said, we, and we've, we've had this conversation on the podcast a few times in terms of, will that change how teams organize themselves in terms of having more people, um, who you know, do certain races as opposed to having, you know, single, single filled roles, I suppose, in terms of having that one person who has to be at every race or whatever it might be. And we see quite different structures evolve, um, in, in how they go about things. Because like you said, this is a, it's a huge sport. It's a huge piece of entertainment as well, which some people I know won't agree with or, or, or enjoy the idea that this is, is sport, but it is both sport and entertainment. Um, yeah. and, and, but you've got people at the heart of it as well, right? Without all of those teams and the people back in the factories on the grid, um, and yeah. obviously in all of the, the supporting partners and vendors as well, who are all obviously, um, you know, they don't just get to go tools down for a weekend either. So there might not be the travel involved, but, you know, they're still on. So we'll see what happens. And last one from our listeners here, which is a a nice simple question, maybe. Um, Do you have a favourite track, either past or present? So one that's on the calendar at the moment or it doesn't have to be. I do love spa. I've got like a love-hate relationship with that place. Um, 2019 was obviously, Mm. you know, horrendous. Equally, 2021 was awful, Um, the washout. Yeah. But the track itself is spectacular. And it's set in, it's so dramatic, set in the, I just think it's it's pretty extraordinary. Um, I love Austria as well, actually. I think the Austria track is awesome. Um. The way it's kind of set, you know, that massive hill up to turn three and the way it then weaves back down. I've, and I've, I've run a few of the tracks and that's one of the ones I loved running. And Suzuka as well. I think Suzuka's beautiful, like the sort of flowing um, changes in elevation. And it's a, that's a real driver classic. So I'd say, yeah, those those three stand out to me for sure. And what about a favourite one to to visit in terms of atmosphere um, and as a, somebody who's visiting the city, I suppose, and this probably lends itself more to the, um, street races perhaps, but not all of them, but do you have a favorite city that you've been to as part of your formula one work? Um, I think oh, Budapest is, Budapest is pretty cool. <laughs> That's like a really, really fun one. Um, cause the city is, 
yeah, comes alive and you're right in the heart of it. The track's not too far away and everyone's, you know, staying in the same kind of place. So that's, that's a really cool one. Equally, Abu Dhabi is fun. Like Yas Island is a really, really good vibe. And again, everyone's in the same place. It's end of season. So there's this real party vibe. Our Singapore, I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to list them all, aren't I? But Singapore <laughs> is well. listing the calendar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then look, for me this season, like Silverstone was an atmosphere that I'll never forget in my life. I'm so grateful to the fans there because um, I did the stage interviews with the British drivers and it was genuinely like one of the greatest moments of my career, um, of my life. It, It was extraordinary. So yeah, the atmosphere created at Silverstone was second to none this year. Amazing. Yeah, we had a great chat with um, Richard Saxby after the Silverstone Grand Prix. He was talking, he was in the stands and taking notes for us and then we had a chat with him afterwards um, and he was talking about this year. He said, you know, Silverstone obviously it's something very um, special to, to British hearts but he said every year it just gets, it just seems to grow in that way and not even necessarily in terms of, um, you know, the size of the the event, so to speak, which obviously it does, but just its significance um, to the history of racing and that type of thing. Um, he he shared some very special experiences in, in a similar way, actually, which is, which is interesting. So looking forward, um, there was some very exciting news this year for Australians, which is that F1 TV will be available in Australia. So what can Australians look forward to seeing in 2023 F1 content? Oh, gosh, we had a really good planning meeting the other day, actually. Um, so I can't tell you anything about that because <laughs> it's all in the works. But uh, yep. <laughs> there are so many ideas to continue to enhance the coverage, to offer new perspectives, to bring out, you know, more fun features and, um, you know, more shows and and different shows and that kind of thing. So there's plenty of new content that we're working on. Um, just Will and I mostly being really, really ridiculous and Lawrence kind of tolerating <laughs> us. Um, more ludicrous predictions from Sam Collins, I'd imagine. Um, Rosanna Tennant trying to keep everyone in, in check. Um, you know, commentators being brilliant. Uh, it's great fun. Like you, what you'll get is, is a team of people, a small team who, who put on, you know, I think really, really good shows, um, telling the stories of the race, the race weekend, the paddock at large, but doing it and having the most fun. And I think if we're having fun, hopefully you guys watching well as well. So yeah, we, we put on amazing shows for you guys and, and hopefully you enjoy them as much as we in, enjoy making them. And talking about some wild predictions. Have you got any early predictions for next year? We've got some new team principles, which could throw some (laughs) interesting dynamics out there. So my wildest prediction, I'm going to get on the record now. I don't know if I can. A mid-season driver switch at Red Bull. We've got a third driver, Daniel Ricciardo. May we see him back on the grid? You know that this is an Australian audience, Laura. You're playing right into the hearts of all of our I didn't listeners. Even actually think that. <laughs> but no, look, that's my like silly, wild prediction. I think you can't predict anything in Formula One this season, isn't it? Like silly season was on steroids. It was just ridiculous. So, um, but that's that's one of my predictions. Uh, is that <laughs> I'll be a Red Bull driver switch? Well, I for one hope that. <laughs> 
your prediction comes true. I'm not don't have a crystal ball. You might have one there somewhere, but uh, but that is something that I think many people who are <laughs> listeners of this podcast will will love to hear from from your trusted voice. There you go. We'll say it one more one more time. <laughs> no, that's that's not a trusted voice. No, no, I have no facts. I have no evidence. I have no, I have zero evidence. Zero facts. This is sketchy. Don't sue me, Red Bull. But it's just a silly prediction. Love it. Absolutely <laughs> love it. We're all about everything silly here on Lakeside Drive. So, look, Laura, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I hope you get to get some some, some downtime as well. Finally, I say that kind of very tentatively, knowing that you've still got so many events and Christmas things and everything else going on. But hopefully you get to put your feet up and um, enjoy being at home for a bit. Yeah, I'll have about three weeks off over Christmas, so... I'll disappear for a bit and hibernate and then come back out ready to go in January. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to seeing you then and all of that great content in 2023. Laura Winter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so, so much for having me. Thanks for a great interview. Many thanks to Laura for joining me for such a fun but also interesting and insightful conversation. We can't wait to see you back on camera for the coming season. If you enjoyed our chat, please consider subscribing to the podcast wherever you are listening or watching and perhaps even consider leaving a rating or review. We read all of them and we love seeing your feedback. But that's it for this episode and we'll see you next time on Lakeside Drive.